Nothing represents the peak of knowledge and understanding while also receiving a special brand of public derision quite like the study of philosophy. It doesn't seem to fit into our economy in easy-to-understand ways, and yet being able to ask the questions philosophy asks us is what makes us most essentially human. So when it comes to understanding the point of college, we can learn a lot by turning to philosophy and its history to help guide our thinking about why we might need a higher education. So let's do just that with my guest today, Fordham University philosophy lecturer, Dr. Philip Walsh. Welcome to The Crush. Welcome, everybody. Happy New Year. Thanks for tuning in. It has definitely been a while. The fall is uh, pretty nuts. Turns out when you're helping kids apply to college and there isn't a ton of time to do much else, but I am back on the horse, as it were, here in 2020 and have some exciting folks dialed up to join me here uh, on the pod. So I hope you will join me too. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. I'm in there on uh, Pocket Casts and Stitcher and all those other uh, platforms too. And don't forget to rate this show too. If you've got a thumb and a few moments and you're listening to me right now, I ask you to do that. My guess is that you fit this description. So why not? So my guest today is someone who has made his way as an honest-to-God philosopher and someone I met during a talk he gave on using philosophy to consider the point of college. He'll dig into that in the last half hour of our talk, but we'll also spend some time talking about the study of philosophy. As a humanities major myself, it has always driven me nuts to hear these branches of learning get written off as pointless waste of time, so I'm happy to hear from others who not only agree that it isn't, but can say so in interesting and compelling ways. It's intriguing to consider these kinds of questions for me uh, today in an age when college is expensive and STEM fields are what seems to motivate everything we do, certainly when it comes to the economic return on your tuition investment. And nothing gets this short into the stick in terms of ROI quite like the humanities does. And it's usually a tie between philosophy and English for the prize of most likely to have a dad derisively say, well, what are you going to do with that degree? It's getting the expected amount of traction as well in the political debates as candidates discuss the concept of uh, free college and get pushback from other candidates who want to promote the skilled trades instead of or as an alternative to college. And you'll hear Dr. Walsh ask a really important question, which would suggest relative to this concern, why do these things need to be mutually exclusive options? So what's the point of the humanities and philosophy more specifically, according to my guest, and what can it teach us about uh, the point of a higher education? Let's dig into it here with Dr. Phil Walsh, who I talked to in New York City. Philip Walsh, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Where were you just before this? Uh, I was just teaching my summer session course, Introduction to Philosophy, Human Nature. Today was the first day of summer session two at Fordham University at Lincoln Center. Do you start it off by playing the Michael Jackson song? <laughs> Is it involved in the in no. that? No. Okay. No, I don't play any Michael Jackson songs. You can use that, though, if you'd like. <laughs> I used to actually play music while students were filing in, like before class officially started that, you know, five to ten minutes where everyone's just kind of sitting there looking at their phones yeah 
I used to play music during that time. What'd you play? Because just whatever I was okay. into, right. which is typically a lot of indie rock. Yeah. Um, because it would kind of like ease the tension. I find like people will chat to each other and like be more relaxed if there's kind of like some background music on. But then for some reason, I felt like it just got stale and it felt like a, like, you know, a dad trying to impress <laughs> the youth with his taste or something. And I just was like, this is, I'm not going to do this anymore. So now I just sit there in silence. <laughs> I got, you know, I mean, there's, there's, it seems to me that there's probably a breaking point with professors where they sort of stop yeah. trying to do that, right? Where it's like, I yeah, realize this is it. just I'm never going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I am hitting that point. Yeah. How long have you been teaching? Well, um, you know, in graduate school, you're a TA, right? Which counts as teaching, right? That's labor as an instructor. Totally. Um, so I went to graduate school at UC Irvine. My first year was fall 2008. Go Eaters. Go Eaters. Zot, zot, zot. Yes. Um, yeah, so I, be, I enrolled there fall 2008. I had a fellowship for my first year, so I officially began teaching um, working as a TA at UCI uh, in 2009, fall 2009. Mm -hmm. So I was a TA for you know several years, about four years uh, there while I was a grad student. And then I got my PhD in 2014 um, and have had full-time uh, lecturing positions uh, ever since. So really since 2014, I've been teaching my own courses, developing my own syllabi, you know, being the lead instructor on, on a course. And now you're at Fordham. Yes, now I'm a postdoctoral teaching fellow is my official title. So what's that mean? It means I'm not a professor, <laughs> um, but I'm someone who aspires to be a professor. Yeah. Um, it is a title, you know, there, there are these various titles in academia. Basically what everyone wants is to be a tenured professor. Right. Um, or to get a tenure track position and then you earn tenure over five or six years typically. Um, but those positions are incredibly difficult to get. Um, no it's incredibly competitive. And so um, not for lack of demand for teaching, right? There's more students than ever to teach, um, but there is less budgetary room than ever to actually give robust, secure, tenure track um, positions. Right. So a whole cornucopia of uh, adjunct labor positions have sprouted mm -hmm. with titles like adjunct professor or lecturer or postdoc, postdoctoral teaching fellow. And these positions run the gamut from uh, very precarious, where you're just kind of a um, gun for hire, teaching, you know, getting a contract for one course at a time, one yeah. semester at a time. Uh, my position's more stable than that. I have a three-year full-time uh, postdoc position mm -hmm. uh, that I'm just finishing my second year of. Okay, yeah. cool. And the idea is that then you'd be potentially, you know, up for or looking at a tenure track job at, at, at Fordham or kind of anywhere? Anywhere. Um, Fordham or, you know, uh, any, any university in general yeah. typically will not take someone who is in an adjunct level job, like a full-time lecturer or a postdoc, right. and simply promote them to a tenure track job right. uh, for fear of nepotism. Uh, so they'll have to do a full job search, you know, a nationwide job search, right. uh, which then I would reapply. You know, I would be one applicant among many for that job. Right. Being already at Fordham, yeah, that could help me mm -hmm. in that job search. You know, I have the teaching experience there. I know some mm -hmm. of the faculty already. 
Uh, but it's so competitive that yeah. it's not that big of a help. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, I, I gather that you really like to do this. Yes. Yes, I truly do. Yeah, I, I met you over at our office in New Jersey where, you know, you gave a really great presentation that I'm going to I'm going to ask you to kind of summarize here at some point. But, you know, what I learned about you there is that you're also on on what I regard as a pretty valuable mission, which is to help people understand that, you know, philosophy isn't just hippie crap that doesn't get you a job. That's correct. Is that, I think that's not quite how you put it though. That's, I don't think, but, yeah, I mean, but that gets the gist of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's something deeply important and central to being human. Being human involves philosophical reflection, mm-hmm. I think. Um, so you might say it's an inescapable fate and we can be more or less skilled at it. And mm. college especially is probably, you know, as far as the United States education goes, Uh, College, I always say this, I just said this today because it was the first day of class. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, this is the, to college students, you know, this is probably, not necessarily, but probably the one time in your life where you will actually get to devote yourself systematically with guidance to these kinds of questions, to to philosophical inquiry, to what it means to be a human being, um, to the nature of reality to the value of knowledge, to ethical questions and political questions about how we should live, right? These are unavoidable questions, they're part of being human. We all engage them in some way or another, whether it's through popular culture that we enjoy, the literature and movies we may enjoy. Um, You know, traditionally it's been something that organized religion has uh, helped people Mm -hmm. engage with and grapple with those kinds of questions. Increasingly, that's probably waning. Mm-hmm. Um, and so philosophy is more valuable than ever, um, not just as an academic discipline, but as a discipline that you can practice right. and try to be a flourishing human being. So you're not getting any help from the likes of, I think it's people like Marco Rubio, <laughs> who um, <laughs> sort of famously yes. or infamously remarked uh, not long ago, I think it was when he was running for president and, and, and back when he didn't like Donald Trump, he said uh, something like America doesn't need more philosophers. They need more welders more plumbers, or plumbers. Or welders. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Something like yeah. that. In and 2016 Republican primary debate discussing higher education. It should be more efficient, streamlined, which is code speak for like a business. Damn it. Let's eliminate non-essential coursework so that students can finish in a more timely manner and spend less money. And hey, look, I'm actually sympathetic to those kinds of um, concerns because higher education is becoming prohibitively expensive. People are incurring massive debt. And so one can understand like, hey, if we can get this done in two and a half years or three years instead of four years and students can pay less tuition overall, shouldn't we do that? And I'm certainly sympathetic to that. And you know, but Rubio's little zinger was, you know, we don't need more philosophers. We need more welders. And yeah, I think it was welders mm-hmm. um, to which, you know, if, if I if we're if we're, if we're dealing zingers, um, this is a zinger my, deal. And I, w- I want my go for it, man. What's wrong with wanting my welder or my plumber to know some philosophy? Mm-hmm. Right? And I have to give credit to my friend Matt Yunker. Um, Shout out to Matt. Who good line? I think coined that. I probably saw it on Facebook or something. <laughs> uh, but yeah, right. It's as if it's this either or. Yeah. Where um, learning a trade, learning a vocation, 
Um, and let's not kid ourselves, the so-called white-collar jobs that college trains us for, um, that the business school trains people for, that's, tr- that's Votech school too, right? It's mm-hmm. just a different technical trade. Mm-hmm. Um, you're learning a set of technical skills so that you can have success on the job market. That's fine. That's all good, right? But why wouldn't the humanities be integrated into that sort of education? Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't it be? And when else would it be, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm all in favor. I want... I think college, or sorry, I, I think philosophy should be introduced way earlier in our in our educational system. I think fifth, sixth grade, mm-hmm. right, um, and at least in junior high and high school, right. But short of that, sort of total overhaul of the education system. Look, we have carved out this one unique space in young people's lives called college, mm-hmm. where they will get to systematically engage with humanistic um, questions, literature, history, theology, philosophy, um, and so on. Mm -hmm. So that is of immense value. And now I'm giving the spiel. Um, There's been a trend, you know, there's been a strong trend where you'll see lots of instrumental justifications of the humanities in you know, fancy people magazines like Atlantic and New Yorker, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. right? What's the value of the humanities or what's the value of philosophy, right? Right. Um, and when I say instrumental justifications, I mean a way of justifying philosophy or the humanities in general uh, that does not claim a sort of intrinsic value to those disciplines. They're just good for their own sake, uh, but they're valuable for the sake of making you more competitive in the job market, mm-hmm. um, et cetera, et cetera, right? And especially in Silicon Valley now, there's this kind of, uh, or, or on Wall Street too, there's this little micro trend where philosophy seems to be becoming like highly fetishized by like, you know, um, Elon Musk and um, Mark Cuban. Um, and there's a really wealthy uh, hedge fund guy who just gave tens of million dollars to Johns Hopkins and he credited his philosophy background mm-hmm. uh, with his success or partially credited, right? Mm-hmm. And so now philosophy is kind of like trending or I wouldn't go that far, um, but there's been this little trend of saying, oh, like philosophy is this extra little thing that you can have on your resume that you'll think outside the box, you'll be more of a creative problem solver, uh, but ultimately the value in that is economic right? and it's kind of like a bonus flourish yeah right, right. it's not it's like the, the core is like something to do while you're studying computer it's science this feather in your cap that will make you stand out on the job market okay um and make you you know a more flexible creative thought leader mm-hmm. uh, which mm-hmm. is the word i was introduced to fairly recently that's what they just call thinkers i guess thought yeah. leaders. yeah anyway um and so look so there's you know there's 101 a million and one of these sort of think pieces saying like, what's the value of the humanities? What's the value of philosophy? Uh, and they give a sort of uh, economic justification, yep. right? It makes you more suited for the competitive global marketplace, right? which I totally agree with, mm-hmm. which it surely does. Um, and then on the other hand, no, you get these intrinsic value justifications of philosophy where no, this is just part of living a good life. Mm-hmm. This is just part of being a good human being, being an excellent human being. Um, so yes, of course it will make you better at all these other things, um, but that's not the sole source of its value. Um, and so I, you know, I standardly try to tell my students both of those things because I don't think everyone should go get a PhD in philosophy. That would be ridiculous. I don't mm-hmm. think everyone should be a philosophy major, mm-hmm. right? But I do think everyone should study philosophy. So 
You said that there's sort of no better time than now to study philosophy. What is it about now that makes it such an ideal time to, to dive into it, you think? It's a great time to dive into it because, you know, the like I was saying earlier about the competitiveness of the job market, uh, that has its downsides for people like me who try to, trying to get stable jobs. Uh, but I guess you might say one of the upsides is the market is flooded with really good people who are really talented um, and that students can really learn a lot from. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, I'm generalizing here. The people who get the good jobs aren't necessarily the best teachers. But <laughs> I think the younger generation of philosophers, the generation of philosophers um, under 40 in general, um, are good, mm-hmm. right? Are, mm-hmm. are good for the world. And, yeah. Um, philosophy is becoming more diverse than ever, right? Philosophy, the past decade or so, uh, the discipline, the professional discipline has become intense, intensely uh, self-reflective about issues of diversity um, and representation, right? It's traditionally been a very white male discipline. Right. So pushing um, back against the old dead white guy sort of yes. foundation so of the discipline. In terms of the people you see in the at the front of the classroom teaching the courses, that's becoming more diverse, mm-hmm. slowly but mm-hmm. surely. Mm-hmm. Um, the names you see on syllabi, right? We're diversifying the canon. We're trying to teach a more diverse uh, history of philosophy, uh, philosophy uh, because, oh, wow, turns out uh, it's always been a global affair mm-hmm. um, practiced by people from all different cultures and you know, both men and women. Um, so... Yeah, there's a lot of work to be done, but I, I do see incremental changes that are trending in the right direction in terms of um, new. And so not only who's teaching the classes and what authors are getting taught, but also the kinds of issues that are getting taught mm-hmm. um, in ter- you know, concerning race and gender, um, concerning all kinds of questions about the value of democracy um, all kinds of interrelated issues, right? It's not just the standard sort of canon anymore of, um, you know, here's Aquinas's proof for the existence of God, and here's Descartes' proof for the conscious mind, and so on and so forth. I mean, those are still there. They're, mm-hmm. not, they're not going anywhere. Um, but I think philosophy is more exciting than ever, mm-hmm. and that is um, showing up in the classroom, even in intro-level courses. Does philosophy, because I know that I think that it, it, it sort of gets classified, you know, in, in, in terms of sort of data and academic you know, reporting, it gets sort of lumped in with religious studies. Is philosophy just sort of a secular version of religious studies? I mean, are they asking the same questions? What's the difference? Well, it's a big question. Um, they're definitely related historically, um, not only in the Western tradition, but in, you know, classical Indian and Chinese philosophy as well. Um, religious traditions, um, religious practices have often uh, been the kinds of practices that have given birth to uh, more strictly philosophical kinds of texts and questions. Um, But no, I wouldn't say it's just a secular version of religion. The kind of short and sweet condensed summary that I often give is religion gives you answers and philosophy only gives you more questions Mm -hmm. for take Christianity, take Western religion um, or Abrahamic religions in general. From the perspective of those religions, we know the truth, right? That's what revelation means. We have these texts. We have this text Mm -hmm. and it's the word of God, right? So we already know 
answers. You know, we know about the origin of the world. We know the meaning of being a human being. Right. You're created in God's image, right. and by the grace of Christ, um, your sins are forgiven, and through, um, you know, life devoted to this way of living, right, you accept God's grace into your life for eternal salvation or something like that. We have the story. Right. Right. And then um, Christian philosophizing gets into the nitty gritty, gets into the weeds of, oh, how, do, how does that work precisely, right? God's three, but also one. How can something that's three things be one thing? How can three things be identical and be one thing at the same time? Yes. You get into, okay, here's how. Right, I'll tell you a story about how that works. Mm -hmm. And then the Islamic tradition, of course, disagrees. No, that's heresy. God is one, completely unified, not three. Right, but now we're having a philosophical debate, right, about a metaphysical question about numerical identity, right, and mm -hmm. essence mm -hmm. and existence and mm -hmm. things and, mm -hmm. and these metaphysical issues, right. So the philosopher comes in to sort out these questions that seem like they need tidying up from the kind of theological answers. Um, but that's not the sole origin of philosophy. Philosophy doesn't have to begin with, uh, you know, tidying up the loose ends right. of religion by any means. Okay, no. that's helpful. Thank you. Yeah. The so I think obviously you know philosophy, which you know you're describing as belonging in the humanities, is often sort of regarded as you know something that belongs in liberal arts right and it's another thing that i find to be a problem sort of as far as nomenclature is concerned right that you know again the 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 charged atmosphere in which we live these days and you know the value of of a higher education constantly sort of brought into question you know anything that has the word liberal in it is you know given a certain sort of identity um and uh i wonder if like you know, to the and, and so as a result, what we, you know, what and what this debate is doing, I think, as far as higher education is concerned, and the one that 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 marginalizes the study of philosophy is one that says our system of higher education needs to be preparation for the workforce in general. You know, and I think it's been that way largely for a long time, but now you know it's given a new sort of sense of urgency with the cost of college going where it's mm -hmm. going and all that kind of stuff. And so I think what people are saying is like. There are no obvious apparent skills right. that are valuable in the economy right. when you study philosophy as opposed to computer science or chemical engineering. Right. How would you push back against that? Um, there are general skills, though, that philosophy and the liberal arts in general cultivate. Um, so, no, it doesn't give you the kind of concrete specific skills that computer science um, or finance um, or, you know, an engineering degree or nursing degree will give you. Um, that's certainly correct. Right. But again, and we already, as I was saying earlier about this, like, oh, now philosophy is kind of trending um, mm -hmm. among business type people, Silicon Valley type people. Why? Because they're realizing uh, that workers who simply have a skill set from a computer science degree or an engineering degree or something like that aren't actually the best workers. Because work, right, productivity involves so much more than that. Namely, I mean, here's here's a very concrete example I can provide. Mm -hmm. um, what is a what is a concrete skill that philosophy provides that is more needed than ever? Uh, communication skill, right? The ability to articulate oneself clearly uh, in oral and written communication. My wife works in finance, and she tells me this all the time. You know, they. She gets interns who work for her, and half of the time they can't write a decent paragraph. 
And a lot of business, a lot of the business world is writing. That's a lot of the job, mm-hmm. writing memos, writing reports on things, mm-hmm. right? So there's, I mean, there's just a very basic skill. And that's a, a skill I find myself teaching a lot um, in intro to philosophy. We have to write a paper. You have to write a paper for my class. And yeah, I want to come to office hours and let's talk about your thesis and some philosophical ideas. But also like, you know, let me read the first page or, you know, let me le- read your intro paragraph. And, you know, what I, nine times out of 10, let me cross out about 80% of it because it's fluff. Mm-hmm. You don't need any of it, mm-hmm. right? Just say exactly, dive right in. Say exactly what you need to start saying, mm-hmm. right? In this paper, I argue that blah, 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 right? Mm-hmm. You know, you don't need those first five sentences where you're just noodling about, for ages, philosophers have debated, right? Many people, you don't need any of that, right? Mm-hmm. Just get mm-hmm. to the point, right? So philosophical writing, you know, tends to favor very clear, direct, concise um, economy of expression. So that's an infinitely transferable skill, right? Sure. That's just something that's deeply important. Mm-hmm. Another one is, look, Right. There's these abstract philosophical problems that, yeah, maybe you'll, they're really, they, they give you no sort of concrete benefit in the workplace, right? These questions about the nature of justice in Plato um, or, you know, the problem of knowledge in contemporary epistemology, right? Can we come up with a set of necessary and sufficient conditions? Could God uh, make a burrito so big <laughs> yeah, that, that he, he could need it? Right? could not eat it. For, right, right. right. Um, and I had a student, uh, one of my, one of my, actually my, one of my first students when I was a TA at UC Irvine, my very first class, I was TAing intro to ethics and I had like, you know, eight kids in this room and they were great. And a guy named Sebastian was in my class and he was, he ended up doing the philosophy major at UC Irvine. I believe he double majored. Um, in political science or maybe minored in political science or something like that. I may have that wrong. He may have just majored in philosophy. I know for sure he majored in philosophy. Uh, He went on to work on Capitol Hill, got a job for the United States Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. I'm not sure if he interned for a congressperson or something like that. But, you know, he got his foot in the door in this kind of D.C. job world, Mm -hmm. and he did quite well for himself. And I believe now he has a job for Toyota. Mm-hmm. And he got, you know, a perfectly good white collar job. He's doing great. Mm-hmm. He's, he's killing it. Right. And I caught up with him one time and I just said, like, you know, let me pick your brain for like, why is philosophy valuable? You know what? Yeah. You know, you, you ended up with this job and now you're in the business world. Like, but you got a philosophy major. Mm-hmm. And he's like, let me tell you what. You know, I had these two professors and I'll give a shout out now. Mark Fiocco and Bonnie Kent um, at UC Irvine. I believe Bonnie retired recently. And he said, like taking that metaphysics course with Fioco and taking that course on Kant's ethics with Bonnie, uh, with Professor Kent, that's the hardest thing I've ever had to think about in my life, mm. right? Like, I just had to do something so difficult, right? I had to understand something so dense, and then I had to write about it in a clear and concise way. Like, do I need to, like, know about Kant's ethics? No, right? But I had to do something so difficult, right, that now... I sit down in these meetings, you know, I read these reports, right? I know how to sit down and get right to the point and have a sharp question, right? And find the flaws in people's arguments, right? So that's what philosophy teaches, right? This so, is a, by the way, this is such a big, such a, a popular pathway to law school, for instance, right? Yeah, These same yeah. kinds of things, right? Yeah, I mean, philosophy majors, I don't have the statistics in front of me, though, but, you know, statistically, they're right up there. I don't know if they're number one or number two in uh, LSAT. 
right. uh, performance, but also very high up on the other professional school tests, right. the MCAT, MCAT and, stuff, right. and the GRE as well. You know, philosophy majors do well on those kinds of tests because those tests supposedly, right, big asterisks, um, you know, measure a kind of general intelligence. Mm-hmm. And that's what philosophy is. It's cultivating a kind of general skill at thinking. Well, and you mentioned something else, too, that seems to be in short supply these days that would elevate the value of something like knowing a thing or two about philosophy. And that's the the, the subject of ethics, right, which belongs oh, yeah. in the in the wheelhouse of philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is something that's much more concrete um, and specific. Right. And philosophy you know, has spun out a lot of these kind of professional ethics classes, business ethics, nursing ethics, you know, bioethics or health, you know, healthcare ethics, um, engineering ethics, techno- um, the ethics of technology, right? I, pers- I teach a philosophy of technology course, and it's not strictly on like the ethics of technology, but that's obviously a central component. Um, so yeah, these engineers and nurses and doctors and uh, business professionals, right, they should take these kinds of courses to be familiar with the kinds of questions um, that come up, right? Yeah, and I mean, it doesn't... It, oh, and if I, if I may say, please. right, um, probably one of the most exciting areas, something that I'm trying to get involved with, um, with a group here in New York City, um, I believe they're called All Tech is Human, or the Humane Tech Movement, or something like that. Okay. This is something that's really blowing up recently, um, is the ethics of algorithms. Mm-hmm. Right. And because now we've built these systems that track our data uh, in a staggering level of detail. Mm-hmm. Right. And you have these incredibly huge data sets um, that track patterns of human behavior uh, in all kinds of different ways. But you need algorithms to sort through that data. Right. To make sense of it, to find patterns in it mm-hmm. right, and to yield meaningful Uh, information right but the way the algorithms get written can be biased to favor certain kinds of people certain kinds of groups etc etc right and this turns out to really matter when these algorithms are used in policing software right right in there's a a great book that came out that i was just trying to remember the name called weapons of math yes destruction weapons of math destruction uh there's another one i haven't read that just came out recently called like surveillance capitalism Mm mm-hmm um, anyway, we should think long and hard about whether human behavior can be quantified in certain ways and when that is worth doing, mm-hmm. right? It is worth doing maybe in certain, in certain times, right? But there may be other times where it's pernicious and simply should be banned, right? right? Um, facial recognition technology is one technology that I lean towards just a flat outright ban. Mm-hmm. And I'd recommend to your listeners um, a philosopher named Evan Selinger uh, on that topic, right? There's no, right, could it be used in a neutral way or could it be used for good? Yes, of course it could, mm-hmm. right? But once it's integrated with existing data sets, um, the temptation will be too great mm-hmm. to police and track the population with a kind of terrifying level of control um so yeah so those are you know those are kinds of issues where like people are getting these computer science degrees people are you know working in um you know the the back office of a financial institution right and algorithms are dictating human behavior um in all these new ways like we should understand 
uh, when that can become deeply problematic and philosophy, you know, we're, we're on it. <laughs> right. Right. Well, it, it seems that the, the, the problem is that the, the profit motive isn't weighed in favor of ethical behavior. Of course you not. know, that it, that it's, yeah. it's, it's weighed in favor of doing basically as little as possible on the ethics side, such that you're not do you're not getting arrested or or, or compliance actually killing people or yeah. you know even though you could argue that a lot of what's we going on killing people with Facebook and you know the you know the Rohingya refugees you, and YouTube's I mean. algorithm is radicalizing people. So right, so so that's happening. Um, I mean, don't you think that? And and it's you know kind of back to the argument of like selling the concept of philosophy to students and the parents that are paying for their education, you know, be ethical is like a really not sexy kind of thing, <laughs> no. right? You know, and, and it's and it's and unfortunately, but if the you know if the if the profit model shifted in favor of doing ethical things, like it would all yeah. of a sudden become very sexy, right? I mean, yeah, it's it's certainly not sexy. It's not going to get butts in the seats, and so for the sake of the survival of philosophy as a professional discipline because mm-hmm. look philosophy will survive regardless of if it's being practiced in it's university been around communities. for a long yeah. time yeah. but for the sake of you know philosophy as a professional discipline for you know ha- you know for getting sufficient funding to hire people and give them stable jobs and you know for philosophy to flourish professionally in this capitalist system that we have this mm-hmm. capitalist higher education uh, system that we have I am totally fine with the instrumental justifications where, hey, philosophy will make you better at whatever other major you're thinking about, right? And I really do encourage philosophy as a double major. That's usually kind of my go-to mm-hmm. advice for students who are really interested in philosophy or as a minor. You know, we try, I know at Fordham and at other schools, we try to make philosophy um, something that's easy to do as a double major, mm-hmm. right? That's um, not too much of a burden in terms of credits or mm-hmm. you can't do it. Um, you know, and I I have tons of success stories from some of my peers from college and from some of my pre- past students um, who do the double major and go on to be very successful in all kinds of different areas and are incredibly glad, you know, incredibly happy with that double major. They say, yeah, it has like these concrete benefits where I'm like better at my job or I'm just better uh, at what I do. And also just like, I'm really glad that I spent three, four years like reading some of those texts and thinking about those issues and like, mm-hmm. it just makes you a better human. Yeah. Why wouldn't you want to do that? <laughs> I mean, I think it should just be a mandatory thing built into the whole curriculum, but you know, a guy can dream. What does being a good human pay for Christ's sake? That's what I want to know. <laughs> um, you know, that's, but, but honestly it's, it's, um, that's the question, right? And that's what we're wrestling with. Like, and that's, you know, this is what I, I, you know, would stand behind college fair tables when I worked for the university of Rochester and field these kinds of just sort of general, you yeah. know, bleh from, from people saying, I don't want to study that stuff. Yeah. You know, it's going to be science. And, you know, and I just, I, I wonder when and how, you know, uh, that gets inserted into the zeitgeist in a, in, in a way that makes a difference. And yeah, I'm we glad. need, let's, we we'll, need better let's do our PR part here today, but yeah, we need better PR. I, hey, I'm out here, man. Yeah, I'm, you are. I'm fighting the fight. You're right here. Um, but that's another reason I said philosophy is cooler than ever because we are starting to get some better PR. There's, you know, a lot of kind of books written by contemporary philosophers um, that are pitched to a more general audience but are still, you know, um, very philosophical. A former professor of mine at UC Irvine, Aaron James, is a good person to mention here. Um, can I curse? Absolutely. Yeah. So he wrote a book called "Assholes: A Theory," 
Oh, well, it's only um, if it's in the title of a book, though. Yeah, so <laughs> you're safe, yeah. Um, and it's just really cool because... <laughs> I would like to read that book. We, no, I mean, we ha- we obviously have a huge asshole a problem. Being a citizen of New York City There's, a, there's assholes everywhere. <laughs> uh, dude, I live in North Jersey. Don't even get me started. You know, can I can I share an anecdote? You know, just the, means. the preponderance of assholes. You know, so in, Nor- in New Jersey, um, you can't pump your own gas. Yeah. Um, this is some archaic rule, whatever. Uh, you have to sit in the car and there's an attendant comes over, pumps your gas. Okay, fine. You know, so I'm sitting there. There's like 10 or 12 gas pumps. Yes. And one poor kid, you know, some high school kid or whatever. Who's running around. Running around. Yep. And, you know, there's a guy in a pickup truck, of course. Mm-hmm. Are the pickup trucks getting bigger? Are they just getting larger now? Well, sure. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, the guy in a pickup truck at the adjacent gas pump to me, he starts honking the horn. Cool. And cursing. Mm-hmm. You know, come on, fucking mm-hmm. A, come mm-hmm. on, like mm-hmm. asshole, mm-hmm. right? Asshole, someone who feels as though they're systematically entitled to things. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and will defend it with a kind of belligerence. Anyway, in the book, Aaron, uh, you know, he, he gives a, I, I kind of just paraphrased it, but he gives a very precise definition of what an asshole is, right? It's not necessarily a jerk or a douchebag. <laughs> um, and why there seems to be a preponderance of them. And what we ought to do to help manage the problem, right? Really, though, it's an ethics book. Yeah. Right? Really, yeah. it's an exercise in metaphysics, right? In conceptual analysis. Let's get a re- let's articulate a super clear definition of a phenomenon and differentiate it from neighboring but distinct phenomena, mm-hmm. right? That's conceptual analysis. That's an essential skill that I always teach. Um, and then it brings in all these different ethical um, philosophers, right? But not in too much detail or depth where it's a really, you know, heavy it's a book philosophy for the people. book. Um, it's a great book. You know, so there's been a whole bunch of books like that. And we're all going to have to navigate a world of assholes. And so it's valuable yeah. to have a, a framework yeah. for understanding it. Yeah. I'm reading another book by na- right now by a philosopher at uh, Berkeley named Alvin Noe. It's called Infinite Baseball. Mm-hmm. He's a huge baseball fan. And uh, it just kind of these short five, six page chapters that are just spurred by baseball, you know, by watching baseball, philosophical issues that come up. Yeah. It's a totally fun book. Totally, right. totally enjoyable book. So there's a lot more of these books now. Um, oh, Aaron James, he wrote another one called Surfing with Sart because Aaron loves surfing. He's an accomplished surfer. Um, and he talks about surfing, but. Mm-hmm. You know, weaves mm-hmm. in all this kind of philosophical narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another great thing, if I'm giving plugs right now sure. for selling philosophy to the masses, cannot recommend it enough, uh, Barry Lamb's podcast, Hi-Fi Nation. So Barry Lamb, is okay. a, he's a philosopher at Vassar. Yep, nearby. Uh, and he has a background in radio production. So, you know, it's not just like two nerds talking into their laptop microphone mm-hmm. and arguing about metaphysics. Um, it's kind of think of like this American life, but interviewing philosophers and weaving in news stories and things like that. Oh, cool. It's a fantastic podcast. Um, and it's, you know, so we're doing a better job. We're getting Mm -hmm, philosophy mm -hmm, out mm -hmm. there, but yeah, we need to do an even better job because I get it right. College is insanely expensive. The youth are stressed, more stressed than ever about it. And their, you know, parents are probably prepping them for college starting in like sixth grade or whatever. At least. So... You know, I'm I'm out there. You know, I did a series of talks at my public library out in my town in New Jersey, um, just to try to people come to it. Yeah, people came to it. Now it was it was the older set. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You know, seven p.m. on a Wednesday. Sure. <laughs> um, but you know, people are curious. Yeah. People want. People are interested in philosophy. 
we just need to put it out there. So that's kind of what I've devoted my life to. That's awesome. I was really interested in the 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 arguments that you were making the other night in sort of using philosophy to talk about the point of college. Yeah, sure. And I am always sort of interested in that. Um, you know, I mean, we touched on it on a, already, I feel like a handful of times of the course yeah. of this conversation already, but sort of briefly, like how, how, how do you use, you know, the framework of philosophy to yeah. help others understand the point of a higher education? Yeah. So in my introductory class, um, I always start with Plato, the Republic, you know, a, a true classic. Um, and the Republic includes a theory of education in it. Okay. Um, it's a theory of everything. I mean, the book touches on all kinds of issues. Um, and so, you know, the, they're, they're trying to understand the, the value of justice, right? Is it, is it good to be just? You know, is, it, is justice valuable for its own sake, right? Or, you know, if you could do anything you want and suffer no consequences, would you just do that, right? Or is just being just, being fair, being a good person, is, is it kind of its own reward? That's one of the, that's the question that kind of drives the republic. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it, it really meanders. I won't go into all the details, but, you know, the way Socrates starts answering this question is he says, let's imagine the ideal city, right? And if we find that the ideal city includes justice, um, then that'll be a clue, right? That'll show us that justice really does have intrinsic value. It really mm-hmm. is good for its own sake. Uh, so then they start imagining the ideal city, division of labor, blah, blah, blah. What, you know, who do we need in this city? What's necessary for the, for the ideal city? Um, and that quickly leads to a discussion of like what he calls the guardians, right? The guardians are the rulers mm-hmm. of the city, the guardian class, the true elite, um, whose purpose, whose skill, whose knowledge uh, is concerned with discerning threat from non-threat, being able to tell what's good for the city versus what's bad for the city, right? So in order to understand that, they have to know what's best for social living in general, mm-hmm. right? In order to know what's best for the city, you have to kind of understand what's best for communal life. Well, that's now we're doing ethics. Now we're doing political philosophy. Philosophy, you know, we're okay. What's the best way to live? What mm-hmm. is it to have a flourishing community and being a be a flourishing individual in that community? That's a philosophical question, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, how. So it turns out the guardians need to be philosophers. Philosophers need to be in charge, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so Plato then, you know, goes through, and here's what kind of education this group of society would need to get, right, to become true philosopher kings and queens, right, to be true elite guardians of society, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, he talks about that, and they need to study mathematics because mathematics helps us understand what's true and eternal, uh, but then they need to study kind of like political science um, and argumentation. They need to, you know, roll up their sleeves and get their hands dirty and kind of uh, learn how to govern a non-ideal city, even though they understand what the ideal city should be uh, and so on and so forth. Right. But the, the kind of picture of communal life and education that emerges is one in which very few people will be guardians. Right. It's a meritocracy and it's a form of elitism. Um, it's an epistocracy, which is ruled by those most knowledgeable. Kind of like um, what's going on kind of like today. No, America. I would I, I would not say that those most knowledgeable. Oh, OK, you're being sarcastic. <laughs> um, you're right. Philosophers. Uh, we, we always just take the semantics. I got a good dead statement. Too. That's, my, yeah. that's my problem. Um, OK, so epistocracy. 
Right. The, it's a kind of elitism. It's a kind of meritocracy. But it's not by bloodline, right? It's not by, oh, you know, you're part of this family lineage right, right, right. and you get to rule. Plato envisions it as truly a kind of elitist meritocracy where the youth from, you know, an early age are identified as the, you know, who will be put on what educational track, Mm -hmm. right? And most people are going to become craftspeople, tradespeople, right? Most people are going to be identified early on as, okay, like you are fit to be a merchant. You are fit to be a manual laborer of some kind, right? Very few young people um, will, you know, rise up uh, and demonstrate you know, the necessary intellectual prowess to become members of the guardian class. And even those who do, right, will go through their, another level of education and training, and very few will become the true, you know, elite of the elite, the true guardians and rulers of the city. Most of the, like, regular guardians will be those, the soldiers, mm-hmm. the, those who are charged with carrying out the orders of the true lawmakers. Right. So... This is, you know, anathema to American education, American philosophy, the American dream, the American outlook, right? We do not like the idea of putting kids on a certain track where, you know, in eighth grade, it is decided that, you know, oh, you're going to go to a Votech school. Mm -hmm. Like, you don't, you're not college material, Mm -hmm. right? We do not like that idea of, you know, teenagers right sort of arresting de- somebody's de- development determining spot you know yeah. what's possible for them and yeah. and setting them on a track right. right we like this idea that uh if you just work hard enough right anyone can achieve anything right. really um and so you know i teach plato uh because you know the students are really like going along with it at first but then it gets to this kind of like wait so this is like this society and like, oh, by the way, censorship is really important in this society uh, because you want the whole purpose of the guardian class is the ethical life of the city. Mm-hmm. Right. So people can't be most people just don't know what's best for them. Mm-hmm. Right. So they need, you know, the kind of material, the kind of popular culture, the kind of educational, you know, materials that they're exposed to has to be controlled, mm-hmm. right? And so censorship plays an essential role in this whole system uh, to shelter people from dangerous knowledge, right? Except to make them love their leaders, to make them think that this truly is the best kind of way of life, right? And then, you know, that's when students, you know, at an American university are like, wait a minute, mm-hmm, <laughs> this mm-hmm. is terrifying, this is bad, like mm-hmm. this is totalitarian, and it is. Mm-hmm. But it's great because that forces us to reflect on like, wait, why is that bad? Um, why is all the things we value um, in a free, liberal, open society, right? Like, why are those the right way? Mm-hmm. Do we have it figured out? Um, and so I pair Plato and that theory of education, which is elitist, um, which identifies people from a relatively young age and puts them on a path, and that's your path, mm-hmm. and then uses propaganda uh, and censorship to control their thought so that they not only take that path, but love it and accept it, mm-hmm. okay? I pair that with Ralph Emerson, mm-hmm. Ralph Waldo Emerson, um, the kind of first original American philosopher uh, in the early nineteenth, early to mid-19th century. So we read Emerson's famous essay, Self-Reliance, okay? So you couldn't get a more different kind of outlook. Um, so Emerson wrote Self-Reliance, 
and al- already you can kind of hear the Americanness of it, right? The you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, uh, be self-reliant. That's Emerson's message in that essay. And um, not just in the like economic sense of like make a living for yourself, but Emerson really meant it in like the intellectual sense, like mm-hmm. think your own thoughts, be your own person um, in, ter- you know, in terms of your, the life of your mind. Mm-hmm. And so you got to think this time period, like 17, 1800s, Emerson, of course, is not the first philosophical person in America, right? But he wanted to be the first American philosopher in the sense that he wanted to break away from European tradition, right? So, you know, not just philosophy as in we read the classics and we read European philosophers, you know, Descartes, Rousseau, Kant, Locke, etc. But no, what would a uniquely American voice, a uniquely American philosophical voice be, right? And so when Emerson's writing self-reliance, that's what he's seeking out, right? Yep. Um, And in many of his essays, okay? So what is Emerson's picture of education? What does it look like? Well, he doesn't give a nice big theory of everything like Plato does, but we can kind of read between the lines and kind of make some inferences about what Emerson really values. You know, Emerson hates conformity, right? The, what, what is the enemy of self-reliance? Conformity, right? And he says conformity is what society values the most, right? And so he goes through this laundry list of social institutions and, you know, denigrates them, right? So philanthropy, organized religion, formal education, uh, so-called etiquette, uh, mm-hmm. so-called virtuous behavior, and on and on, yeah. right? And says, these are all mechanisms of conformity, mm-hmm. right? These are all just, <clears throat> they are the enemy of self-reliance, mm-hmm. right? And then constantly throughout this discussion, he's celebrating childhood, mm-hmm. right? Oh, like the, the kids are all right, man. The kids, when you let them play on their own, off in the other room, right? You'll, you'll, that's when they are truly free, and that's what we should emulate, Um So, of course, Emerson is an incredibly educated person, right? Right. Easy for Um, him to say. And so you might say, well, isn't there some kind of like contradiction or hypocrisy here, Emerson? Like you studied all those classics, right? Yeah. And he also, he's, you know, quoting Plato favorably, quoting, um, you know, a lot of Eastern philosophers, one of the first American philosophers who were reading um, some Eastern philosophers, some Confucian uh, and Vedantic philosophers. Anyway. Um, But the point is, right, for Emerson, you should never simply adopt a system. You should experientially forge your own. Mm -hmm. And that could end up overlapping with or being compatible with some existing system, right? So is Emerson going to say, like, oh, organized religion is the enemy, therefore everything that Christianity teaches is wrong? No, he's not going to say that, right? But you should not embrace Christian ideals because they are coming from a source of authority and you accept that source of authority, right? That is abdicating your own life, right? That is giving up on yourself and simply deferring to authority. Mm -hmm. That's what Emerson abhors. So question authority, step one, if you're an Emersonian. So here's here's the lesson. Here's the way I I always uh, tell my students, right? Look, so you're heading off to college. And uh, your parent, maybe your parents, or maybe someone, the fun uncle in your family tells you, look, don't drink too much, 
right? Mm-hmm. Or don't don't drink tequila or whatever it is, right? Don't drink too much. And you you know you you went through the Dare program. I don't know if they even have that now. Or you went through drug education. You know, like alcohol's bad for me, especially right? tequila. You know all you know all the lessons about. You know what a hangover is. You know that al- you know how alcohol affects the body, mm-hmm. right? You know, like don't drink too much. Mm-hmm. You'll pay for it, right? But for Emerson, right, you don't really know until you have that first hangover, mm-hmm. right? That's now you know, right? So you may end up embracing the very same thing that authority told you to embrace, mm-hmm. right? That's Plato. Mm-hmm. Plato says, look, Plato's system, Trust us, we know Pla- Plato's system is ultimately from, uh, paternalistic, yeah. right? You don't know what's good for you. You mm-hmm. don't know what's best for yourself. Mm-hmm. Don't drink any tequila. Trust me, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. For Emerson, right, from the Emersonian perspective, that may be correct, mm-hmm. but it's not yours until you've learned it in this first-person experiential way, Got it. right? So why do we grapple with Plato in my intro class? Not because Plato is necessarily right or wrong, right, but because actually the most Emersonian thing we can do is confront a view of education and society and governance that is so alien and foreign to ours so that we have to grapple with it and grapple with the things we take for granted, right? And then come out on the other side having really thought it through for ourselves, right? Right. So should we just accept Plato because it's Plato, right? Or because it's such a beautiful, elegant system that all hangs together? No, right? But maybe Plato's right about some things, right? So... So yeah, we get these kind of completely opposing views, right? Where we have the Emersonian individualism, yeah. self-reliance, learn things for yourself versus the kind of platonic paternalism of like, look, you don't really know what's best for you. So trust the system. So do you feel like the, you know, college as it's, uh, you know, the average college experience as it's sort of, uh, as it is experienced today necessarily falls into, you know, a particular sort of category of thought as far as the philosophers are concerned? I think we send young people both messages. I think we send young people a very mixed message about the point of higher education today. On the one hand, right, everything we were just saying earlier about, you know, the economic necessities of, you know, you have to get a concrete skill set so that you can get a job and pay down this debt, et cetera, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, And look, like, there's there's truth to all of that. Um, And so there's a kind of platonic, you know, view lurking in the background there where, you know, we get these high school kids and, hey, earlier, you know, junior high. We all generally submit to the, you know, the system as it is. Yeah. Which is to say it's better that you get a college education tell young people. Look, here's the things you should study. Here's the things you should learn. Here are the five or six majors that you should consider seriously. Um, trust us. This mm-hmm. is for your own good. You'll be thankful when you're 30 and you don't have any debt, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's really hard to be like 17 and wrap your mind around, right? Mm-hmm. To really grow. And I, so I rejected all that, mm-hmm. right? Um, but what do we also tell students now? Again, I'm you know I'm generalizing here, painting in broad brushstrokes. We also tell tell young people something like um, find your passion. Yeah, right. right. Do do something you love. If you if you find something you love, you never work another day in your life. That's mm-hmm. what that's what I heard. That's mm-hmm. that's what I was told. Um, and I also want to you know pause for a second and be aware uh, that that's a very white male thing. That's a very rich white male thing to be told. Right. Um, if you're coming from a place of privilege. Uh, and you're told your whole life, you know, that you're special and you deserve all this, 
right? Then like, yeah, you tend to be told things like, yeah, just find something you love and the world will just work itself out, right? right? Like, of course it will because it always has for people like you, right? Whereas if, you know, you're coming from a more disadvantaged position, um, yeah, maybe you're not told that and you're mm-hmm. told like you're going to study this because you're going to get a good job, right? Well, yeah, and the, and the, the you know the conflict also between you know trust us we know best versus do your own thing is evident, you know, in I would argue sort of the majority of, you know, standard sort of four-year undergraduate experiences in terms of like you can major in whatever you like, but there's also this core curriculum over here that you're going to have to deal with. Yeah. Yeah, so we try to have it both ways and I'm okay with that. I, I think it can be done right. I think a place like Fordham um, is really trying to do it right. You know, there's just mandatory humanities, you know, liberal arts core curriculum. Um, I went to Villanova, similar similar sort of system. You know, the Jesuit schools, uh, Villanova's Augustinian, but, you know, in general, the, the Jesuit schools are good on this sort of thing where the motto, the mission statement is that we educate the whole person. Mm-hmm. And so we do not view students as repositories of skill sets. Um that is something college has to be now, um, but we still educate the whole person, and you're going to take philosophy, and you're going to take theology, and you're going to take history. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I mean, just think, you know, yes, I think it's probably veering more towards the like, look, you need to study one of these profitable things, um, and then maybe you'll have time for that other stuff, and hey, that's fun. But look at the way college is depicted in pop culture in movies, mm-hmm. right? Road trips. Yeah, it's a joke. Make the best friends of your life. Uh, the greatest, the most memorable parties you'll ever have, right? The, mm-hmm. Oh, the dormitory. Ah, wild and crazy times, right? So there still is this sort of thing where like college is this place to go find yourself. College is this place to discover who you really are, right? And that there's a kind of Emersonian, now Emerson doesn't want you to just, you know, party <laughs> and not read or study or anything like that, but there is a kind of sort of self-discovery mm-hmm. right so college is this time for self-discovery and so there still is some of that i think that's probably losing um no college is this time to get these skills so that you can be competitive in the global marketplace what about self-discovery uh you can watch some ted talks for that <laughs> um you can re- listen to a podcast you can uh, you know read these self-help books for that but people still want that people still want that that's why there's all these popular philosophical books that's why my talk at the local public library is packed mm-hmm. right because that shit matters mm-hmm, man mm-hmm. because at the end of the day you're lying in your bed looking up at the ceiling being like what the fuck am i doing mm-hmm, what is mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. what is this all about right philosophy is inescapable yeah so given the amount of time that you have spent in institutions of higher learning in thinking about this set from a philosophical standpoint like what would you change about our approach um as it as it's sort of, as it's set up now well, as I said earlier, I would definitely introduce philosophy in high school, if not earlier, mm-hmm. right? Um, just basic informal logic and critical thinking type classes, and then maybe, you know, some... It could be integrated with a kind of history class, right? Like history of great ideas, read some Plato, or whatever. Well, the International Baccalaureate Program Something does like have that. the theory of knowledge. I mean, I'm, I'm lucky, you know, I went to a Catholic high school, and senior year... Um, our theology courses, you could take death and dying. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a very, that ended up being a very philosophical class. And we read some existentialism, uh, and you could take world religions, right. And learn about Hinduism and Buddhism and, and, um, and, and other world religions. And, you know, that is the seed of philosophical thinking. Um, I mean, that's even 
you know, the first few pages of Plato's Republic, right? What initiates the dialogue? What initiates the philosophical inquiry? One, he goes down to the Piraeus, which is the port where the commerce and trade happens. That's the place where if you're an Athenian, that's where you would be exposed to foreign ideas, foreign languages, foreign customs and traditions. And it's way on the way back up to Athens where they start questioning their values, right? So perhaps after we are exposed to difference, to foreign ideas, to you know different values and customs, that's when philosophical thinking begins because we start to wonder about our own. Mm-hmm. The other part is he goes over to um, Cephalus's house. Cephalus is old and he's like, Cephalus, you're old. I love talking to old people because they've traveled a journey that we all have to travel upon. Uh, what do you What do you think? And he's like, I'll tell you what I think, Socrates. I'm thinking about my death. <laughs> and that makes me wonder, did I live a good life? Mm-hmm. And then the whole thing begins with, well, what is justice? What does it mean to live a good life? Right. So death and dying, facing our own mortality, yeah. that spurs philosophical thinking. That was a theology class I had. Right. And world religions, exposure to foreign ideas. Right. That makes you reflect on your own ideals. Um, and that spurs philosophical thinking, right? So it could be in high school, but those were theology classes. So now I know, you know, not all not all high schools are going to have something like that. And it wasn't until I was a senior. Mm-hmm. So that's the number one thing I would like to see is to see philosophy uh, in high school and probably even junior high. Mm-hmm. Um, as for higher ed, uh, as for college proper, what would I change? Oh, I don't know, man. You put me on the spot here. Um, <laughs> I mean, really, you know, dreaming big, ideal world, um, not just Jesuit schools, but all schools just have a mandatory core humanities, you know, liberal arts core requirement. Yeah. Um, and you and I would make it even more robust that there are you have to take philosophy classes all four years. Hmm. OK, um, one thing we haven't touched on, you know, uh, you were talking earlier about how philosophy uh, seems to you know is is measured with theology or you know yeah. it's kind of historically related to theology. Yeah. It's also very much historically historically related to and something that grows out of science. Sure, right? There's a point where logic uh, science runs up against certain questions that can't be answered empirically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, and then well, okay, what are we doing? Mm-hmm. Is there still a way we can make sense of something if it's not based on gathering data, mm-hmm. right, on empirical investigation? Hey, philosophy of science, that's a whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. That's a whole thing, especially uh, in the 20th century, right? right? So it really is continuous with all other areas of education, so I would like to see it integrated into the, in the curriculum um, at all levels. Perhaps that's a bit unrealistic. A hey, bit we're utopian. just dreaming. Um but I mean, I think, you know, it's yeah. interesting because I, I, and I'd like to see, uh, you know, I don't know that I've ever seen numbers on this, but I'd love to see sort of the just general sort of national picture of like um, how many what the majors are that people change for like what the changes are. Right. Like, so I, I get the I, I perceive and I mean, obviously. I worked at the University of Rochester, which is, I think, a very, which is generally well known in the sort of biological sciences and physical sciences realm. But, you know, obviously it's a 
T1 Research University. They've got philosophy department. They've yeah. got religious yeah. studies. They've got anthropology and everything, right? Yeah. Um, but you'd never see a kid coming in wanting to major in anthropology. You see a million kids coming in to major in something like biology. Yeah. Um, eventually, they think they would find their way to those topics and to a lot of other topics that are just simply not available in high school because they've never been introduced to it before. Yeah, you know. Exactly. But then they finally show up and they're like, oh, I now I see what the value I was already. Of this is interested in this and I just didn't know I was right yeah I mean and it takes skilled teachers right and yeah. people to help um, you know and, and other kinds of advisors when kids get there to help them see and make the connections between disciplines absolutely so that they can understand their component parts and how they work together as a whole so for for their purposes and whatever their goals are I mean I really think reflecting now you know I can kill two birds with one stone here there's way too many philosophy PhDs and not enough jobs in college what if every high school in America had one or two people who were philosophy teachers. I mean, I think that would be great for education in this country, mm -hmm. for democracy in this country, um, for the country in general. I also think that would be great for the way we teach philosophy at the highest levels to PhDs, to people like me, because you need to publish, right? To right. make yourself stand out, to get one of those tenure track jobs. Mm -hmm. And so you end up hyper specializing mm -hmm. in one problem mm -hmm. very, a very narrow problem, area right. right so that you can carve out something unique to say mm -hmm. right but that odds are if you teach um you know at a public research school or you know i taught at cal state long beach um you know or or anywhere really a school like fordham too you know the courses you teach to undergrads are not really going to be related to that little specialized niche that you work on your research for. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. you know, you teach an upper division course that's more in your area. Even then, you have to get, like, my my area of expertise, my specialization is philosophy of mind um, and phenomenology, which is the study of consciousness. That's cool. Um, it is cool. Phenomenology. Yeah. Hell yeah. yeah. So that's a 20th century uh, German kind of school of philosophy, mm -hmm. Germany and France. It means the study of consciousness from the first person perspective. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, and contemporary philosophy of mind and issues in cognitive science, the brain versus consciousness, all, you know, these kinds mm -hmm. of issues, right? Um, about perceptual knowledge and things like that, uh, the relationship between thought and language. You know, these are the kinds of things I'm interested in and I published on, right? And so I've taught philosophy of mind um, as an upper division course, right? But even then, when I'm teaching a course in my area, so to speak, I still give like, I'm still giving like a pretty general introduction and I'm talking about a lot of things in philosophy of mind that I never would publish on mm -hmm. because even within philosophy of mind, I'm hyper-specialized mm -hmm. in a few things, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, back to my, my original point, right? If there were more viable career paths for the philosophy PhD, like a huge new demand for philosophy at the high school level, right, then we would train PhDs differently because you're not, not everyone needs to, you know, get this hyper-specialized, you know, write this book on something so then go get the job at Princeton, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of us just need to, can you teach intro to logic, mm -hmm. right? Can you, do you have a basic general knowledge of the history of philosophy and not just Western philosophy? Can you teach some Chinese philosophy? Can you mm -hmm. teach some Indian philosophy? Can you teach some South American and Mesoamerican philosophy, right? right? Um, because that's what high school teachers do, right? You know, like mm -hmm. the high school biology teacher, yep, they have a general knowledge of biology 
and it's sufficient for introducing the subject, right? right? So, yeah, that's my answer, right? I think there should be a reorientation regarding what we want out of philosophy at this high, at the highest level. But of course, that would only happen um, if there was this new area where people could actually get jobs. Okay. Well, it sounds like a good initiative uh, to work on. Yeah. <laughs> I'm. Let me know how I can help. Well, um, more philosophy at the high school level. There's ways. Well, it's we a can, it's a yeah. it's a question we need to pose to I think the presidential candidates who are going to be in a position to you know hire uh, you know heads of departments of education that are going to do arguably more forward thinking stuff like that than you know yeah. making it easier for for yeah. profit colleges to rip poor people off. I don't I don't know though if we can have a uh, standardized quantified uh, test to measure philosophical uh, outcomes the high school level and therefore maybe it, it won't get any federal funding <laughs> uh, well uh hey let's keep dreaming and seeing yeah. what happens um but this is fascinating man thank you so much for talking yeah. to me about it and um i hope that uh in some way small or large we've contributed to helping people out there understand the value of the work that you do the stuff that you think about and the ways in which all of this stuff can help make all these people out here better people for themselves and to each other Thanks, Devin. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So Phil wins a Most Patient Guest Award because you may have noticed we did uh, do this talk over the summer, and I'm really glad to be able to finally get it out. So again, a huge thanks to him for his patience and, uh, of course, participation. It's a super important message he is out there promoting, and I'm glad to be able to try and uh, help him promote that as much as I can. I've shared a bunch of the resources that we talked about in the show notes, including an article called The Humanities Are in Crisis in the Atlantic, uh, with a good bunch of data about the, the nature of this crisis. And while it is a functional problem that the study of humanities is declining, uh, a problem for those departments, a problem for people who want to get jobs as professors in those departments, but gen- a huge problem for our society in general. In many ways, I think it also shines a light on the elements of our culture that need for there to be winners and losers. And winning means making the most money. And while overall and on average, you see that there's certainly a difference in terms of the salaries of STEM versus non-STEM graduates. If you spend some time on humanitiesindicators.org, which is a project of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and you look at all the data that they present, there isn't some wild swing uh, in the satisfaction indicators between humanities and non-humanities graduates in the workforce. They're all pretty much just as happy with the lives they're leading and the choices they've made. Uh, They're just as satisfied in their jobs, just as hopeful and aware of the fact that they're a work in progress yet to realize their best self the only really marked difference appears to be in salary and salary is important but it it simply isn't everything when it comes to as a friend of mine recently put it uh, leading a life uh, well lived like millions of other people who are doing just fine these days i am a humanities major myself so you know maybe a smidge biased in my perspective i guess but i I wouldn't trade it for anything Uh, you know there's room in the economy for people who study in the humanities because well Not everything in the economy is just directly tied to your major. College isn't just workforce preparation or wealth maximization preparation. We're allowed to worry about our kids' future. We should. 
but we can be better and more constructive warriors if we don't venerate certain areas of study to the detriment of others. There are no good and bad majors or useful and useless majors. We can do better than this. So thanks again, everybody, for checking this out. More coming soon, as promised. Happy New Year. Hang in there and spread love.